in a moment, uh, a few seconds to say hello, each other, hello to each other. But first, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, on this nice day. It's cool. It's refreshing. It feels good. The air is kind of smoky, though. We pray that you sustain our voices today as we sing your praises and worship you. We thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit's presence right here, right now, that we can truly worship you, that we can pay attention to who you are and what you do. And Lord God, we pray that all of us today would have that assurance, not only of our salvation, but Lord God, you are the sovereign king. You're the one, Lord God, that has salvation history in in motion, and you save and you provide, and you lead. And so, God, we're here to follow you and to be your servants today in worship and every day of our lives, Lord, to give you glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and say hello to each other. Let's introduce ourselves. Take a few moments. Move around a little bit. Feel free to say hi. Good morning, everybody. Let's back in our pews. (laughs) It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with our family in Christ. Let's worship him. Let your kingdom come, Father. Let your will be done on earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come, Father. Let your will be done on earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us, forgive us as we forgive the one. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let your kingdom come, Father, let your kingdom come, Father, let your will. 
just go over all those things that we believe in and all that truth that we just sing about. And we're here this morning to just take some time and really stand on those beliefs and that truth that comes from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that's within us this morning. Just Let's just take a minute and have some silence and pray this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for opening our hearts to you, for coming after us, Father, as prodigals, as we all are, as lost sheep, Father, that we're in great need of you, great need of a shepherd and a father and a ruler of our days. Thank you, Father, for coming and meeting us here.
Heavenly Father, it's amazing that we can call you Daddy, and you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the author of everything good and perfect and wonderful. And so, God, we come to you and your throne today through the cross of Christ, in humility, Lord God, and with love in our hearts, that what Christ accomplished for us, Lord, brought us into community with you and each other. We're thankful that when Christ died on the cross, you chose to save us. You chose to relieve us of our sins and the consequences. You chose to restore us, to refresh us, to transform us. You chose, Lord God, to give us eternal life. And Lord, the world around us, so many people, the majority of people, still do not know you. They don't know your love. They don't know your grace and mercy. They think that they can achieve something. But Lord God, you've done it all. And so God, we come to you and we give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you glory and honor and majesty is declared. We thank you that we can magnify your name for the world to see you more clearly and understand your good news, that they could receive it and believe it. And we ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit do that wonderful, transforming miracle to give them a living spirit alive to you. Lord, you're the one that can do this. We're your messengers. We trust you. And we're here to give you praise always and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, Sunday school is ready to go. Let's see. I think the kids are ready to go for Sunday school. I just got a note up here. I'm just trying to figure it out. Uh, continuing a tradition of our congregation on September the 10th, we will be presenting Adventure Bibles to kids entering third grade or you're eight years old. Please let us know if your child is in this age or grade by signing the list in the main office, which is just right over here. So thank you so much. Susie's right there. Kids, you're free up through fifth grade. Sixth grade and up are staying right here with us. Uh, Gabe is with his wife in Northern Ireland visiting with her family. And while I've got the high school students with us, if any of the high school youth have an instrumental ability and want to join and consider joining the praise team, uh, talk to Jenny. Talk to Jenny or any of the praise team members and, uh, or a musical person voice. Uh, let us know because you're the future, right? Um, and so we want to include you in what we're doing. And also, if you have a, a, a desire for geekiness, uh, we've got a not only a computer back there that runs what you see up here, but we also are projecting online. For those online, welcome. Uh, and there's a way to run the cameras and other things that we can teach you too. So if you've got that in your blood, uh, let us know and we can find a ministry fit for you there. So just thought I'd catch you while you're here and uh, if the Lord puts it on your heart, great. We would love to see that happen. All right. Well, for, for those of us that are here in worship, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. We're going to catch a bit of a stretch here. Um, Romans chapter 9 through 11 addresses Israel's place in God's 
choosing and calling and electing his chosen people, right? And the fact that so many non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, were coming to Christ, this created a bit of a consternation in, or a confusion in the minds of the Israeli people. If they're chosen by God, then why hadn't the majority of Israel come to faith in Jesus? And Paul's been addressing this bit by bit, and today he's covering a piece of Scripture, a theological fact that is fairly easy to understand, but very difficult to embrace. Now that I've challenged you, let's see how this plays out. It's something that I think people wrestle with, and uh, it is, there is mystery involved, but uh, we'll work through that. Jesus knew that they were chosen by God and that they knew that they were worshiping a God who was righteous and just but what they struggled with was if God had decided to turn to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus Christ and the majority of Israel's had rejected Christ, how does that work in terms of God's justice and God's righteousness? Has God abandoned his plans? Is that the kind of God that's unshakable, unchangeable? They were starting to wonder what Paul taught and if Paul taught the truth or if Paul taught something that was wrong because in their minds, Using the wrong assumptions, they came to the wrong conclusions. And so Paul tries to, or does in fact, address that. The wrong assumption they had was that they were immune from any judgment, any condemnation, any consequences for their sins because they had been chosen and they'd been given the law. And by reading and studying the law, they didn't necessarily have to do it completely, but they felt that just having it and having been chosen put them in a right status with God. But yet when Christ came, because they didn't understand the need for the forgiveness of their sins, they rejected Jesus in favor of their own self-righteousness, and Paul has to deal with that, because without Jesus, they're lost. Now, they didn't, the Jewish people have never had a problem with God's sovereignty, that God could choose somebody for salvation, that God could elect or call. All those three words in the New Testament are effective productive words, that God makes things happen, that God chooses, calls, elects. And if you were a Jew listening to this, you'd say, yeah, there's no problem. God chose the Hebrew people in their slavery in Egypt, and they were a know-nothing people. They, they didn't have anything going for them. They were at the low end of the socioeconomic strat stratus. They were slaves in Egypt. The dominant power was Egypt at the time. God could have picked a powerhouse. God could have picked an economic, stronger body of people who were enthusiastic for God. But in fact, when you look at God's chosen people, the people of Israel, they were a stiff-necked, ornery bunch who got caught up in paganism quite often, worshiping idols, drifting from God. They had terrible kings when the kings came along. And they, they were such a train wreck in so many ways, just like us in so many ways. God chooses, God calls, God elects. That's God's sovereign right to do that. They didn't have a problem with that. They were okay with that. But the question came in, are, is God a covenantally faithful God? Is he righteous? Does he, have a, does he have the ability to judge us if he chooses? If the entire people of Israel aren't saved, then is God's plan, has God's plan failed? having chosen them? If God's plan for Israel failed, then how can God be a righteous judge? 
Apparently, they would imagine God makes mistakes or simply God is unfair if what Paul is saying and, they, and how they interpreted him is right. They had a lot to learn. I think for this mor- morning, um, our problem is not so much with the covenantal part of it. We have the new covenant in Christ. We don't question God's faithfulness. But I think as Christians and in my pastoral experience talking with people, I think the issue is on the other end of the stick. We have a problem with God's ability to be sovereign and to call, elect, and choose people. That is something we shrink back from and wrestle with. And yes, we have free will. But how free will and God's sovereignty in calling, choosing, and electing interact is a bit of a mystery. But what we're going to see in this passage is that God has the sovereign freedom to call, elect, and choose as God sees fit with grace and mercy. And Paul emphasizes this, and I think the dominant theme throughout the scriptures is that God is sovereign, and he's got the freedom to call, elect, and choose. But again, it comes down to an American sense of fairness. Is that fair? I get that all the time. I'll say, the world is broken with sin, and I've heard, is that fair? Is it fair that some people live longer than others? Is it fair that we die? Is it fair that some people have an economic prosperity and others don't? Is it fair? There's a lot of fairness questions. Fairness in an American mindset has to do with deserving plus activity, actions that deserve something. So if I'm a deserving person inherently and I've done something productive and good, then I deserve fair play. In other words, they rely on the fact that I'm inherently good and I've done something good, therefore God should reward me. I should be chosen, I should be called, I should be elected based on my inherent goodness and my actions. I've merited, deserved. That's where our struggle is. The Israeli people would have said, we don't have a problem with fairness of election, calling, and choosing. We know God is sovereign. We just don't know if he's faithful. We think he's faithful, but we got a problem with the sovereignty part, I believe. That seems to be what I hear mostly. If God loved the entire world, is it fair that not everybody is automatically saved? I bet that goes to the core of what I hear probably the most often. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But I've had many, many conversations with Christians, well-meaning Christians, Christians who believe what Jesus said, believe in their heart that Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, and they've confessed with their mouth. But they'll also say that other religious beliefs are equally valid. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have, I am the only way to the Father over here, and yes, there are many ways over here. They don't overlap. They're not even in agreement. So it's either one or the other. And we have a problem with fairness. It doesn't seem fair. But if we think about it, the widest most available invitation for salvation and the forgiveness of sins is exactly what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the most fair, open statement in the entire world because it's based on what you believe and not what you do. At any age, with any mentality, with any economy, with any nation, with any culture, with any race. Jesus says, you're all welcome because I've done it for you. Can you think of any more generous 
fair invitation on the planet than that. But it, it comes down to how we imagine it, what we think is fair. See, the truth is, yes, we're all humans, absolutely true, but we're not inherently good. The Bible says we're sinners, and we need a Savior, and that's where the difference falls in the world around us. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 really hit the nail on the head. We've already read through these in the sermon series. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter who you are. The only one that doesn't apply to is Jesus, who wasn't a sinner, but bore our sins. And then the next one says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what? It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? That again goes to the widest, most generous, the most wonderful invitation on the planet to know God's love and to love God and to love each other. And it's all accomplished for us by Christ. Now, verses 14 to 23 are some of the hardest verses to, ex- to grapple with, to accept what Paul is saying. And yet, I don't think it's that hard to understand. It has to do with God's sovereign freedom. And before we go any further, I just want to mention that we don't have anything to teach God. Is that clear to everybody? We do not have anything to teach God, but God has everything to teach us. God does not answer all of our questions. I wish there was a chapter in the Bible that said, now this is how your your free will given to you by God intersects with God's free sovereignty to call, choose, and elect, and how those two interact. Lots of conjecture, all-nighters, have you, have you spent long hours talking about this? When I was a kid, I remember sleeping out in sleeping bags, talking in the, underneath the stars about this very thing for hours. And as young men gathered together, talking about God and our salvation, we never figured this out. I have yet to all figured this out. Lots of conjecture, lots of ideas. Both are there in the scriptures. But I'm telling you, the leaning, the, the thrust, the primary, above all, is God is, in fact, sovereign with absolute freedom, to call, choose, and elect. And let's, let's take a look at that now, but let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we're going to read through here shortly what your word tells us, what you inspired Paul to write clearly, that you are a sovereign king. You are the sovereign king. That in your hands, Lord God, that sovereignty has freedom. That you are not bound by us, you are not reliant upon us that you don't need our vote, you don't need our opinion, you don't need us to tell you how to operate. You are the definition of what is good, because you are good. You're the definition of sovereignty. You are the Lord, the creator of all things. We are all accountable to you. And we love you, Lord God, this morning because of what you've done for us. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will minister to all here today and online who are not certain yet about their standing with you, but they will find that peace that your Holy Spirit brings to fill their hearts with salvation and the love of Jesus. It's your choice, Lord God, and we rely on you for this. In Jesus' name, touch our hearts, our minds, our spirit. Amen. I'd like you to 
have no preconceived notions about God's sovereignty, calling, choosing, and election for just 30 seconds, because I think that's about all we can get. We all have ideas. We all have opinions. Some of you have come from Baptist churches or other denominations. Some of you have come from places where they say you can lose your salvation. I'll tell you, front and center, we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. There's only one church. That's what the Bible says. But we do all wrestle with the freedom of God's sovereignty and our freedom in different ways. I want to just look at what Paul says. It's not going to encompass the entire gamut from A to Z. We found out gamut, by the way, is a musical notation for the low note and the high note in medieval music between everything in between. Put that one in the hopper. The whole gamma, gam, and ut. Anyway, you didn't want to know that, but I just discovered that this morning, so I had to share it before I forgot. All right, a little factoid. Now it's recorded on, online, so we'll go back to that. God's not going to answer all of our questions because he's God. God's going to tell us what we need to know, and that's enough. Job had lots of questions for God. I have lots of questions for God. But I've come to know, as Job has known, and you have known probably, that God is enough. God's got this. And so let's look at what Paul says. By God's nature, his choices are fair and just. That's by God's nature. Now, let's look at what Paul wrote. What then shall we say? You can just picture him kind of scratching his chin. Hmm, what are we going to make of this? Is God unjust? <laughs> Not at all. Now, that's that emphatic, emotional, great Scott. No! He's just beside himself. He can't stand that thought. That's an awful thought. For he says to Moses, now he's going to back it up, not with emotions, but with the, the scriptures. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, then Paul says, therefore depend upon man's desires or efforts. It's not on us. We cannot earn God's compassion or mercy. But on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. How are you feeling about that? Does that strike you as a bit unfair? It might. But that's what Paul said. This is the Word of God. What does it mean? How does it play out? How does it interact? Well, a little bit of background. Not all of Israel had come to believe in Jesus Christ, right? They did crucify him after all. In fact, the majority of the Israeli people had rejected Christ as their Messiah. They believed he was real. They believed he died on the cross. They couldn't explain the empty tomb or the appearances of Christ afterwards. Thousands of the people of Israel did believe, read the book of Acts, 3,000, then 5,000. I mean, the church was growing exponentially so rapidly that people were ready to receive and believe the good news of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit moved them. But the majority had not. 
And having been chosen by God as his chosen people, that was a head-scratcher. They were like, how is that possible? Did God miss a step? What's wrong with God, they might have imagined. Well, there's going to be a uh, full eclipse of the moon here, I guess, here in the near future. Am I right on that? Is it moon? Sun? Okay, it's going to be a sun. Okay, I want to talk about the moon eclipse, the, the lunar eclipse for a minute. When we look at a lunar eclipse, when the earth gets between the sun and the moon, you're looking for a brief time at the dark side of the moon. How many of you know Pink Floyd? You know the album, Dark Side of the Moon? He's talking about a lunar eclipse. You didn't know that, did you? Maybe. The lunar eclipse is when crazy stuff happens. That was the basis for his album, by the way. We're looking at the dark side of the moon, and I want to just use that illustration for a moment where the, the sun has been eclipsed and there's this dark side, and then when the earth moves out of the way, you get the bright reflection of the sun off the lunar surface again, right? Paul is going to give us two sides, a darker side, we might say, and a lighter, brighter side. And so we'll start with, I think, the brighter side here this morning. First of all, God is absolutely righteous, but with God's activities in the world with Gentiles, the Jews were thinking, is there a dark side to God? Has God cast a shadow on his justice and his righteousness? Is there something wrong here? And again, I said Paul was very emotional about this. Is God unjust? No way, no how, impossible. Have you ever wondered why many of the paintings and the statues of the Apostle Paul show him to be bald? Let's look at an example of two of them. There's a statue first, I believe. If we could see the picture, that'd be great. There he is. He's bald, bearded, and got his cape and everything on. Okay, and then let's look at a painting. He's got this little, it looks like me a little bit, right? With a little touch right up here in front. Um, that happens when you study scripture, apparently, so beware. <laughs> Paul's often depicted as being bald, and you know where that comes from? It comes from a man named Onesiphorus, who was, in fact, a friend of Paul's. Um, it's attributed to him, but it was probably written in the second century, so maybe it is him in his older years. And he described Paul in writing, and that's where some of these artists got their information. Here's what he said about Paul. Paul was a man small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs. In a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, he had a unibrow, and a nose that was somewhat hooked. That's how they describe Paul. And probably it's fairly accurate because it's early on and they might have known Paul and seemingly did. And I thought to myself, you know, as many times as I've run across great Scott No so far in his book, I didn't realize there were so many. That's why he's bald. He's pulling his hair out left and right. He can't stand it anymore. He's addressing so many hiccups and hang-ups and confused ideas and methodologies and traditions and assumptions and the wrong premises and he's just battling away trying to knock it all down because he says if you don't get the premises or the conditions or the truth right you're going to end up with the wrong answer and that's the same thing for us today so first of all let's look at the bright side of things that bright side of the moon reflecting the sun he quoted God 
and his interaction with Moses on Mount Sinai, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd been freed by God, and they'd come through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and now they're gathered around this mountain, and God is giving them the law. The law is God's description of himself. These are my ethics, God is saying. These are the things that I see are just and right and good. In other words, if God were to lead the people, these are the things that God would expect. Had to do with civil law, had to do with ceremonial law, had to do with ethics. These were all given and provided by God, so God's identifying himself to Moses. Moses doesn't have to make it up or try and figure it out. God says, here you go. This is how I want you to behave and do. It's just after, now if you remember the account, Remember the golden calf? Remember the people wanted something like they had in Egypt with a material idol, something physical, tangible that they could worship and connect with as opposed to an invisible almighty God? And so they said, how about this? Why don't we make a golden calf? And Aaron, who's supposed to be their spiritual leader, caved. And he said, all right, all right, golden calf, let's do it. Let's get it over with. So they make a golden calf, and Moses comes down off the mountain with the first set of Ten Commandments. And when he sees the golden calf, he's so upset, he just breaks them, just shatters them on the ground. And then, of course, they destroy the golden calf. This is Moses' second trip up the mountain. The people have sinned greatly against God. They deserve, what is it, the wages of sin is death. They deserve to be condemned. They've done nothing deserving of God's grace and mercy and compassion, right? So he goes to God the second time. He's going to receive a second set of commandments. And in Exodus 33:19, we read this. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Was there any hope for Israel having behaved the way it had? God said, I'll decide. I'll show mercy and compassion when I choose, and I choose you. That's what it comes down to. And they get another set of commandments, and the covenant of God, the Mosaic covenant, continues. That's the kind of God we have. When God acts, it's always according to his unchangeable being and his own purposes above all else above our thoughts and attitudes and actions. He chooses, he calls, he elects. He shows mercy and compassion as God decides. Verse 16, it does not therefore depend upon our desires or efforts, but on God's mercy. Can you get right with God by being sincere? No. Can you get right with God by really serving God to the nth degree, pouring yourself out, even dying for Christ? Can you do that and get right with God by doing that? No. None of our efforts, attitudes, words can save us apart from God's choosing, calling, and electing. Those are the three words over and over and over again in the New Testament. Who saves us? God does. We don't save ourselves. This is the sovereign work of God. Look at John 6.65. He, Jesus, is speaking. This is why I told you that no one, no one can come to me unless the Father has what? 
enabled them. God has done the work. God has chosen to enable. And when God enables, people come. So basically what the sequence is, God comes to you before you come to God. God calls, chooses, and elects. Then we wake up to this and we say, wow, I've, I believe something happened. Thank you, God. God gets the glory. And I was thinking, what, if God wasn't free to choose anybody, what kind of a sovereign king would we have? Who would God be? Would he be supreme or not? And if he did give us the choice and didn't choose us first and insisted that we choose him first, how would that work out? The Bible says no one seeks God because we're all self-centered, self-interested. It's all about me. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, they needed Jesus. It's good for them. I think that'll be a big help for them. Well, they're assuming that we're all good, but some people aren't as good as others. So the ones that aren't as good as they are, well, they need Jesus, but I'm good enough, I don't need Jesus. This is a crutch I don't need. That's a bad start, because they're not admitting that they don't love God 100% of the time, day and night, seven days a week. They don't get that. And they don't understand that they don't love their neighbor as much as they love themselves all the time. Any of those two we fall short of, we are sinners and we need God's intervention. We are like the ones that made the golden calf. We're the ones that mess up. And aren't you glad for God's mercy and compassion? What if we had to fix ourselves? That'd be horrible. I don't even like me sometimes. Have you ever looked in the mirror and not liked who you are at the moment in that flash? Thank God for mercy and grace and compassion that he loves us. That's a wonderful gift that we have in Christ Jesus. The second quote I kind of think of as the dark side of the moon, the Pink Floyd crazy things happening, uh, hard to understand stuff. About Pharaoh, going back to the time when they were still slaves in Egypt. Paul goes back further in time now, away from Mount Sinai, back to Pharaoh. And this is what he said in verse 17. For the scripture says, he's backing, backing up God's sovereignty and justice by referring to this. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. Who put Pharaoh on the throne? God did. He says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, even here where we are today. That was God's plan. What he did was he said ahead of time he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And if you read the entire context, there are 20 instances in that stretch of chapters in Exodus where it talks about Pharaoh's hard heart. God said it would happen. The first person to harden his heart was Pharaoh. He did it himself. To harden your heart means you resist. You don't want to go there. It's like, I know what... I, you, Moses, I know what you're saying, but I'm not having it. Back off. My heart is hard. Then God challenged that hardness, and God overcame. And if you look at the ten plagues of Egypt, they're defeating the ten gods of Egypt. There's like a power play going on. Egypt is full of pride and arrogance. They're polytheistic. They've got all these different gods, including Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh was considered to be a god. And God knocks them all down, one by one by one. And he's not done until the entire pantheon of those ten are defeated. And God has shown that he's more powerful. He is Almighty God. There is no other. He is witnessing to the entire people, not only the Hebrew people that he called, but the Egyptians themselves, and in fact, the entire world is going to hear about this for God's glory. Why would God ensure then that Pharaoh's heart stayed hard? Well, we don't want to go past what we've read. It's called the argument from silence. If the Bible doesn't say what the outcome was at the end of Pharaoh's life, let's not go there. For all we know, Pharaoh had some moments in the upper room of his own upper room, and he thought to himself, boy, we got whipped. And I let those people go, and my entire army drowned when the sides collapsed. They got through on dry ground. We got swamped, drowned. My army was defeated by God. Do you suppose that would have an impact? Well, we'll never know because the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible's telling us about the people traveling out of Egypt and not the remains. Who knows? God is sovereign. God can do whatever God wants to do. And that's so important that we see that there was a bigger purpose, not just Pharaoh, that God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's a battle, a spiritual battle going on, and it had an impact even today. The first real significant impact that I saw was when Joshua was going to enter into the Promised Land. He's still over on the east side of the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and he's going to cross over into Jericho. Remember that? Those that know your travel history here. And before he goes in, he sends his spies ahead to sort of check out this Jericho situation. What do they got inside the walls? Are they ready for us? You know, are they going to try and defend the city? How can we go about this? So he sends spies in, and as those spies are visiting, they run across a woman who knows God. Already knows because of what God did in Egypt and since then. And here's what she says. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts were melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Why? For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and where? And on earth below. In other words, she'd heard about the glory of God and the miracles that had taken place. And just as God said, I will glorify my name to the ends of the earth. And she is an example of what the hardening of Pharaoh's heart actually accomplished in the long run. She had faith. Your God is the God and not just a God. Great witness. So the theological conclusion Paul writes why Pharaoh's heart was hardened is in verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Bottom line, God has the sovereign freedom to choose to call, and to elect. That's what Paul is saying, and he's just in doing that. If the Jews hardened their hearts against Jesus, they were not 
to say that God's justice was unfair. They were out of step with God's justice. And they didn't understand it yet, but Paul's working on them. Then the next question arises, okay, fine. If God chooses, calls, and elects to show mercy and compassion to some people, and it's not a universal blanket, you know, like everybody's saved, and Israel isn't all there, many are, but most aren't with Jesus, then how can God possibly judge anybody when it's God's fault who got saved and who was not yet saved? Is that a good argument? Is that kind of come to mind to anybody here? It makes sense, right? Wouldn't that be the sequential step? Okay, we'll accept God's sovereign freedom, but then how can God say that any of us are guilty of sin when God's the one that seems to make up the difference? It's not our fault. Something fishy here. Paul deals with that next. God is free to use us for his glory, is I think what the bottom line is on that next section. And it's a longer stretch of reading because there's a lot of backed up or backups there from the Bible because Paul isn't going to go freewheeling. He wants to show that it's biblically rooted to say so. Here's what he writes in 19 to 29. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to whom, him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called? not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not yet, or who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. How do you like that one? How does that make you feel? I'll bet you felt something. What does he mean? Where is this going? How does this play out? Well, let's have a look because it's, it affects us. It affects those we love. It affects our, the people all around us worldwide. How can God blame anyone if God decides who's saved? Great question. The answer isn't a one-to-one answer. Paul does not say X, Y, Z. Here's the three reasons why. What he says basically is, this is what the Bible says. And God is God, and we have to accept the fact that we're going to let God be God. God is telling us how he is, and we're not trying to tell God who he is or what he needs to be. 
So let's just look at what the Bible says, what God told us about himself. And this is the reason that he's going into all this. So the answer here is somewhat like Job. This is where I said earlier at the start of the sermon, I got questions. Do you have questions? Would you like to ask God some real practical, down-to-earth questions? Why this, not that? I do. I've got them. But like Job, I know the answer is God and not the specific answers that I'd like. God should be enough. How many of you remember Saturday Night Live in their opening years when it was still reasonably good? Um, Saturday Night Live birthed all kinds of stars out of that program. And one of them was Chevy Chase. Heard of Chevy Chase? Chevy Chase in New York used to listen to a newscaster on the, on the TV, network TV, and it would be something like, you're watching ABC News and I'm John so-and-so. And Chevy thought that was ridiculous. And so he, he turned it into a well-known slogan that my generation, I think, or at least my group knew. Remember when he'd come on, those of you that are old enough, he, and if you're not old enough, you'll still enjoy it, I think. He would come on and he would say, as a newscaster, Hi, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. <laughs> Just a little poke, right, at the newscaster on network TV. But it was funny. Well, of course he's Chevy Chase, and I'm not. And I thought, that has such a great example for us. It's like God saying, Hi, I'm God, and guess what? You're not. And that's our answer. We've got to let God be God. We've got to let him speak. We've got to let and receive and believe what God tells us. Do we have some head scratchers here in the scriptures? Oh, yeah. Do we have some lingering mystery that's like, how, does this, how do these puzzle pieces fit? Yes, that's, that's right. But we know that God's got this, and God calls us to pray. I loved his saying, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? He uses the word anthropos. It's, who are you, you mere human being, to question your creator? Doesn't the creator have the right to create? Doesn't the creator have the sovereign right to be free, to use us for his glory? Paul's answer, then, is like Job's. At the end of the book of Job, Job finally realizes, you know what, I don't get all the details answered, but you know what, God, you're enough. I trust you. You are God. And Paul strengthens the analogy of the potter and the clay with the reference, I think, back to Isaiah. He loved the book of Isaiah, apparently. Isaiah shows up a lot in the book of Romans. And this is what Isaiah wrote about the potter and the clay. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd or a broken piece of pottery among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Aren't you grateful that God's got his hands on you? I am very grateful. Very grateful. And of course, you know, it's just an analogy. We're not inert lumps of clay, and there is the free will that God gave us. 
So it only goes so far, but the emphasis is God chooses, calls, and elects, and he's got the freedom to do it for his glory and his honor. I still remember that weird, weird question I was asked. Maybe it kind of haunts me, I don't know. But I was up in Haines, Alaska, and I was being examined for ordination to become a minister in the Presbyterian Church. And a fellow, no, I was in Juneau. The guy, the minister in Haines, Alaska was the one that asked me, and he said this, I'm going to ask you a question that the Scottish Presbyterians don't ask anybody anymore. And I thought right away, well, there's probably a reason why they don't ask anybody this question anymore. But it was an ordination question. He said, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? Great Scott, yes. I said, first of all, I don't believe that as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am damned. I'm saved by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. But if God intended to damn me for his glory, I would have to say what? Yes, because he's sovereign. He's king. I'm accountable to God. I'm made by God. I didn't make myself. I belong to the Lord. Now, don't get lost in that and don't let that haunt you. We're saved by grace, not by works. No one can boast. God does not, and we'll find out in a second, God does not go along and say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. That's not how it works. Everybody's out until God intervenes and saves us. But we'll look at that more closely in just a minute. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, out of the same bunch of humanity, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Doesn't God have the right to do what God wants to do? Can we understand all that? I don't think so. There's a little bit of a mystery in how all that works itself out. But do we know that God is sovereign? Yes. We do know that. And then Paul asks some what-if questions. I think the what-if questions are really good about considering whether we're in this, this ministry, in this faith, for our own self-interest, for our own eternal life. You know, I, I want to get there. I want to be in heaven. I'm, I don't really care about ministry or anything else. I don't care about God even. I just want to be right. I want to be okay. Or are we really all about God? God first and foremost. Willing to even pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus which means I'm willing to sacrifice my life for the Lord's sake, as he calls me. Verses 22 to 23, what if, he says, God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? The what-ifs have to do with God's timing for judgment. He's talking about the final judgment day where everybody stands before the throne of God and everybody's judged based on what they have done. But those who believe in Jesus, all their sins have been removed, so only the good is left to judge, which means we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? This is a wonderful gift of grace and mercy and compassion that God has. What if... The answer is God's justice will be revealed most fairly and most clearly at the end. So that's one reason why I never give up praying for anybody's salvation. God invites us to pray, and I believe since God is timeless, he can hear what we're praying for and beseeching God for long before 
anything came to be. Is it a fixed thing? There's mystery all over the place. I'm glad I'm not God. Are you glad you're not God? Wouldn't you be frustrated that people just weren't coming to Jesus left and right and you had no power to do anything about it? God does. God does have the power to do something about it. And I'm grateful to God for that. So here comes the big question. Has God chosen to condemn some people and chosen to save some people? There's a technical term for that. Do we believe in double predestination? Some people, God says, go to hell. Some people go to heaven, and God just sits there and shoots them off in different directions. Now, that's wrong from the very beginning. First of all, it assumes everybody's born neutral. We have no destination. God has to decide what destination you'll be going, because otherwise you have no destination at all. Is that the way it is? We're born sinners needing to be saved. We have a dead spirit to God. Unless the Holy Spirit comes and moves, who gives us a living spirit, that second birth, that born again, that born from above language in John chapter 3 for Nicodemus and Jesus' conversation, if the spirit moves, we're made right with God. But without that, we still aren't alive to God. Not yet. So we're all born in that situation. We're not born in a neutral zone where God determines yes, no, yes, no, up, down, up, down. We're all born in the dark, needing the light of Jesus. And that, thank God, is the work of the Lord. When I was at uh, Seattle Pacific University, I had a roommate. His dad was a Lutheran minister. Um, We didn't get along. It was the longest three quarters of my life, I think. It was long. And we even asked to get a different roommate, and the school refused. It's probably part of our maturing process. And we didn't kill each other or whatnot, but we were just like so different from each other, so dynamically opposite from each other in a hundred different ways that we learned to live with each other. And it was, in the end, a good thing. But it was hard at first. And I remember one time he said, you're a Presbyterian. Do you believe in double predestination? I said, what? Never heard of that in my whole life and explain that, well, double predestination means God chooses you to go to heaven, God chooses you to go to hell. How does that all work itself out? I said, I, don't, I never heard of it. I don't believe that's true. And I still don't believe that's true. I don't think double predestination is what the Bible teaches at all. Then what does it mean prepared for destruction? Did you catch that? Object, objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. You might say, well, it sounds like God prepared some people to be destroyed. Is that what it says? Is God an active agent? No. This is where grammar is important. The verb prepared is middle or passive. In other words, it's the fault of the human being, not God. It's not God's active doing that destruction lies in their future. Paul says it's the fault of the sinful nature in human beings that has prepared them for destruction. In other words, they have, they're on their own path to a real dead end. That's what Paul is saying. It is not God doing this. The ver- the, uh, my dad had a yellow comic book from World War II called Pogo. And in that old, pagey, yellowed smell, it kind of smells after a while. You know, you open it up and you get that old book smell. 
Well, in there is a very famous little cartoon, and Pogo's sitting there, and he says, we've met the enemy, and it's us. And that's what Paul's saying. None of us are sinless. None of us are inherently good. Look at John 3, the language after that quilt over there, the 316, so famous, we forget what follows, and here's what follows. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned when? They already are. They already are. They're still in the dark. They're born in the dark. They're still in the dark. They remain in the dark. They're not believing because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So are people neutral? No. Are we all born in the dark with a dead spirit to God? Yes. Do we need to be saved? Absolutely. Does God call, choose, and elect? Well, I'm so glad because if God didn't, no one seeks God, no one. We're inherently self-centered, self-interested, and not God-centered, sacrificially, letting God use us for his glory completely. I have never, probably ever, loved God completely 100% of the time, but I've learned over time how to give up my selfish interests. How about you? That's a challenge to our very innate nature of me, but to let God have it. Now, doesn't God want everyone to be saved? Now you're thinking, hmm, God is sovereign. He calls, chooses, and elects. Obviously, he doesn't call, choose, and elect everybody. Otherwise, everybody would be saved. We could pull in all of our missionaries, save a lot of money. We wouldn't be praying for anybody's salvation. We wouldn't be worried about anybody's salvation or concerned. It wouldn't even be a thought in our head. We're all fine. But that's not the case. Is God, though, still interested that everybody be saved? Yes. Look, i got three passages for you. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved, everybody, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that we're sinners needing salvation, and Jesus is the one that provides it. Peter wrote this, The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then Jesus said this, when he's weeping over Jerusalem before his crucifixion, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Did he want everybody to come to faith in the people of Israel? Absolutely. Did they? No. Was God just and fair in bringing out a remnant of believers? Yes. You know what real fairness is? He didn't save anybody. If it's all about legal stuff, then God would only be fair if he didn't save anybody because we all deserve death. End of story. But God, with mercy and compassion, stepped in and brought salvation. That is a gift from God. So how can our God-given free will and God's sovereignty and freedom to call, choose, and elect intersect? I'll let you stay awake all night tonight, okay? I'm going to go to bed. 
because when I go to bed tonight, I've come to the conclusion that I thank God that God knows. And I also know that God calls us to prayer, and God calls us to evangelize. Outreach, evangelism, discipleship. We, we oftentimes forget the E, don't we, the evangelism part. All evangelism is is sharing the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not dragging them across the finish line. Now, come on. You know you want to. Come on, I'm not leaving your house until you say yes to Jesus. Uh, that's torture. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is simply a message of good news that we bring. And when the Holy Spirit moves, and we don't know where the Holy Spirit moves or in whom it moves, then we will see the power of God at work. Can God do this without us? He does. But God invites us to be partners in the ministry with him so that we can thank God for what we see happening and we can thank God for the miracles that are going on around the world. We don't see everything like God sees. If we could only see what God sees, we would be blown away and shocked and giddy with joy of how many people every single day come to faith in Jesus Christ worldwide. It's amazing. We just don't get the privilege of seeing it from God's point of view. But what's most important is what is happening in our little sphere right here, in our personal world, in the ministries of the church, in our families and friends, in our coworkers, the people we have connections with. How can we live that out? Well, first of all, I think if we really trust in the sovereignty of God to choose, then let's enter into prayer and let's have confidence that it's not on us and it's not our fault. It's on the people that we share the good news with and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. I still have people that don't believe yet in my family, but I still see people in my family coming to faith in Jesus. Happened a few weeks ago. It's spreading. Some of the hardest nuts to crack have cracked. And I don't know how, except God. His sovereign choosing. I think that we have a role to play in terms of belief, but I don't think we can believe unless God gives us the ability to believe. It's not a rational decision. It's a miraculous decision. I think that's very clear in all of Scripture, that God chooses us first so that we can choose Him. And we need to pray for others to have that same experience. And lastly, uh, I, I don't know how all this settles you will probably wonder, well, I don't know, but the free will thing, you know, and what about baptisms and baptisms of adults, baptisms of babies, baptisms before a certain age range, all kinds of questions. It all has to do with our understanding of God's sovereignty and human free will. And don't get lost in the, the tussle, but just let God be God. And do we know everything that God knows? No. But do we know what we're supposed to do? Yes. And do we know the attitude and the ethics and the actions that God would like us to do? The answer is yes. And the ultimate answer is God is God and we're not. So let's let God be God. Let's surrender ourselves to the Lord. Let's let God rule and reign and then pray like crazy for God to move in the power of his Holy Spirit upon more and more people 
who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. And if you're wondering about your situation today, there's no boxing out or exclusion. You haven't been predestined to the darkness. It's time to recognize the light shining. And God is bright and wonderful and loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate. And that Christ has died for you. This is time. If the Holy Spirit's moving, just make it this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are sovereign king. You're the creator. There isn't another creator. People talk about aliens a lot these days, but they're not our creator. People talk about multiverses without even any evidence because they're trying to push away creation. They're trying to push away the creator and just make it so vast and big their brains explode. Lord God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move here in our congregation, online, families and friends, neighbors, people that come to mind right now. We pray your Holy Spirit brings salvation. You'll call them right now, and they'll know it, that they'll be filled with your love, that they'll know with confidence now their sins all have been forgiven and always will be and that they are right with you by what you have done for them in Christ Jesus. Lord God, it is a, a witness that we bring to the world, but without you, there's no power in it. May your power reign, not only in our lives, but to bring the lost to the light, that they can enjoy you as we do today and have the assurance of their salvation and eternal life. You are amazing, God. Thank you for being so merciful, so gracious, so compassionate, so full of love. Thank you that you reached out and still do to the world and draw them to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the wonderful, loving nature of God the Father and the powerful, sacrificial grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now. And all of God's people could say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Have a great week. Come on down to the Fellowship Hall. Enjoy each other's company. Goodies, coffee, punch, down there. Come on down.